Well, good morning, everyone. It is a beautiful day we have to worship God together, and I think I have the best job in the room today. I get to choose what we talk about and uh, go through this study with you, but I think you have the second best job you could possibly have today, which is hearing and studying for yourself the, the God's word that we have for us today in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a wonderful day to be here, and I'm thankful for the material we have as we consider this hall of faith. Uh, many people have called it in, in the book of Hebrews. So this morning, we're going to start with a little lead up from the previous chapter in chapter 10. Remember, the, the books of the Bible or, or letters were written, uh, just one long manuscript. And man has broken them down into verses and chapters for our own convenience. And so we can kind of navigate and pinpoint them. Uh, and there's an important connection between chapter 10 that we studied last time and chapter 11 that we're going into today. And I don't want to miss that. Because in my study in the past, I have studied this chapter in isolation. And I've looked at these examples of faith. But this came alive for me a lot more when I considered it in light of the broader context of the letter to the Hebrews. So, here we go. In chapter 10, verse 19, he said, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, or the habit, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So here is kind of where we're going to start to really dig into the next context. He's making the transition we talked about last time to their previous stands of faith. Their previous stands of faith is what he's trying to remind them of. So that as he gives this big call and this big push for them to stand in faith, it starts with reminding them of their previous faith and how they've stood up for it. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So there's a lot of language in here that's going to fully uh, transmit into the next chapter. 
This idea of a great reward and confidence. And this idea of receiving the promise once the will of God has been done. Okay. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. So it's coming soon, he says, in just a little while. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And that's the direct lead-in. Who we're going to talk about in Hebrews chapter 11 is those who believed to the saving of the soul. So here we go, Hebrews chapter 11. So as we consider this context, it's being written to people who are struggling to hold on to their system of faith. And Hebrews 11 is to teach how the transition requires faith exemplified by their forefathers. So there, this letter is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for the people considering letting go of the New Testament and going back to the Old Testament, he's trying to complete that bridge for them. And part of this bridge, I think, is reminding them that though they may have felt like they were leaving behind these examples... These examples of faith were footsteps that they needed to follow in. So if you were a Jew, and your whole life you had grown up in this system where you had performed these sacrifices, you had, you had lived uh, under the old law, and you had been taught these stories that inspired you from a young person, when you made the jump to, or the transition to Christianity, maybe they felt like they were leaving behind their examples or their... Uh, what they had confidence in in God, maybe some of the people they looked up to. But the Hebrew writer wants to show them that no, these examples showed faith that is required of you now to make this transition. He's connecting their examples in the past to Christianity today and how that faith still carries on in them. Okay, here we go. This hall of faith, starting with a statement of faith, is really a mixed bag. So in the past, I looked at this chapter like it was walking through this hall of faith where these perfect, awesome people <coughs> lived complete lives of faith that never wavered. But it is certainly a mixed bag. It's very interesting who he picks out and even the events in their lives that he picks out. So starting with verse 1, he says, Now faith is the substance, some translations say assurance, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by that faith, the elders obtained a good testimony or approval, other translations say. They gained approval by God, by their faith. That is how they gained approval. And he's going to tell us a bunch of different people with different personalities, different situations, different challenges, and different histories that they came from. But the theme through all these people is they obtained a good testimony, at least in the examples that he's going to give to us. Verse 3, by faith, he's going to use this phrase over and over, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So I like how he starts off this discussion of faith with a basis of understanding. If people ask you to leave your brain at the door as you approach your faith, I would be very cautious of that person. 
Because everything God teaches us has a grounding and understanding based on faith. And so every, everything he's going to tell us, though faith may go beyond reason, it does not contradict reason. So let me say that again. Though faith may frequently go beyond reason, it will never contradict reason necessarily. We'll get to that more in just a minute. He says here that, the, that we understand by faith, we never saw God create the world. We never saw things go from nothing into something. But we understand that by faith. Now here's an example. We can look at the world around us. We can see the beauty and the intricacy of nature. We can see the structure and we can see the design evident from the snowflake that is never the same. No two snowflakes are the same, but always have an intricate structural design. We can look at the honeycomb of the perfect hexagonal structure of a bee's honeycomb being the perfect mathematical way to store something. We can look at that. We can look at the way that every seed in a sunflower is spaced out this exact way. We can look at all the patterns in nature. We can look at the beauties and the, the, de the definite design behind all creation. And it can go with reason that that is created by an intelligent designer. It may go beyond reason sometimes. It may go beyond what we can reason through and, and pick out, well, why this and why that? It may go beyond our ability to reason. But it doesn't contradict reason that an intelligent designer came up with this. And that's part of the, the basis for what we're going to talk about. We can understand and we can have faith based on an understanding that's not just blind going about life. And I love how he says that it, the things that were made were not made of things which are visible. So some people say that you know this, this world was created by things that were already floating around there. He says, no, these things came from something that is not even visible. So it did not just combust randomly. God put in this, this creative force that introduced things that were not there before. Things that were not visible. Okay, so he's going to make a distinction between faithful understanding and visibility. Visibility is probably the, the, one of the main ways we interact with the world around us. Our sight, our physical sight, uh, is, a, is a primary uh, function of our life that helps us get through. And the people who get through without it, I applaud them greatly. But this, the sense of the spiritual life, the sense of the spiritual world, for us to see things that are of the spiritual world, that are coming from places that are not visible, the sense with which we see the spiritual world is faith. We have to have that extra sense if we are going to survive spiritually. And that extra sense will sometimes push us beyond our own, our own ability to reason. So here's some examples of people who had faith. Starting in verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through, and through it he being dead still speaks. Okay. So if you're not familiar with, with the Old Testament, the very first people in the world were Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had two sons to start with, Cain and Abel. So of these two people mentioned here, he's going to point out and focus on the man Abel. Now Abel 
was the one who had the faith in his sacrifice that was offered to God. Okay? And it was more excellent than Cain's sacrifice, so that God was pleased with Abel. Now, we're going to look at those, those verses and see kind of what happened there. But the distinguishing factor that the New Testament tells us, it was an attitude of the heart. And there may be other factors that we'll consider, but the attitude that he gave his sacrifice to God in faith is the core of it. So in Genesis chapter 4, speaking of Eve here, it says, Then she bore again. So first she had Cain, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So you had a, a sheep a herder, a, a man who kept sheep, and you have a man who worked the ground. So his harvest, or his fruit of his work, was a crop. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering to of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So here we got a couple clues as to how good Abel's sacrifice was. Abel got from the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn is speaking of the very first and the very best and of their fat. So the, of the fatness, that's, that's a suggestion of the most valuable. I mean, if you think about today, we try to trim off all the fat off of our meat. But if you need to survive, you need that fat storage. That's, that's valuable. And so Abel was giving of the first of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. So Cain fell into some kind of uh, maybe envy or jealousy uh, out over his brother, and his countenance fell. So he had a change of heart here. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. So at this point in time, God didn't have a full system of sacrifices lined out to where necessarily uh, he should have been doing an animal sacrifice that I understand. He was simply bringing the fruit of his labor and Abel is bringing the fruit of his labor. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him. You know, a lot of storybook pictures paint this, you know, with, with animation, and it doesn't really look that gruesome, but he murdered his own brother. And as a side note, I'm very thankful that the murder rate has dropped since the first family, because the quarter of the first family was a murderer. 25%, can you imagine if the world today was 25% murderers? I know that our world has a lot of problems, but day one, man, from the very beginning, our world had some serious problems, and, and it's not that prevalent today to be 25% of, of every family is a murderer. So thankful for that. So Cain came up and he killed his brother Abel. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? God knew that. He didn't really need to ask him for information's sake. He was confronting him. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, the way that you used to make your living and to make yourself useful, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. 
a fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be, hid I shall be hidden from your face. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop in this section because this is more about Cain, but that's not what the Hebrew writer is really talking about. The Hebrew writer is talking about Abel's sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice, the distinction made in Hebrews is it was by faith. Now, we're given a clue in, in, in the book of Genesis that he gave his first and his best, and it doesn't say that about Cain. We don't know much about what happened with Cain's sacrifice, but between these two clues, these two are kind of interrelated. Abel's sacrifice was by faith, and I think that, that drove him to give the first and the best. It drove him to give the, the fat of his, of his flock, and it, gave, it drove him to put God first with intentional prioritization. And by his faith, in this example, he still speaks today. His faith still speaks of the power of faith and the value of eternity. That though he was killed, he still had faith, I believe, to, to, his, to his saving of his soul. By his faith, it still speaks volumes today. So as we work on growing our faith, part of our faith is intertwined very directly with how we prioritize. And man, I need a lesson on that for sure. This is, these, these fingers are pointed right at me. Prioritizing. Intentionally sacrificing the best for the one who is the best. That is a statement of faith. As faith was being worked out in his lives, in his life. And as we consider this idea of this relationship between faith and works, they go so hand in hand. They go so commingled that it's really hard to separate them as we study through these examples of faith. It goes on to say, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. So we got this, we're moving on quickly. There's a kind of a rapid fire throughout this chapter of people who showed faith. Enoch is the second one. He was taken away so that he did not die and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. He had this reputation and this statement about him that he pleased God. First of all, it blows my mind still that we can please God. My life doesn't affect important people as a general rule. My life does not affect the President of the United States. My life does not affect any of our House of Representatives. My life does not affect our mayor and hardly even affects my principal at my school. So the fact that my life can please God and have an effect somehow on God, that blows my mind. And it brings me into a space that this is real, this is a... A dynamic situation we are living in that though you cannot see God, he sees you and he knows what your walk of faith is like. So Enoch is the second kind of mystery man we see in the book of Hebrews. First we have Melchizedek and now we have Enoch. These are two very uh, famous for their, for their mystery factor in the Bible. But when you read, he was 365 years old. It, he wasn't just like he came down and just went right back up. He, was, he went through it here. He walked a walk of faith for over 300 years. 
Now, if that sounds weird and you don't know how, how crazy the, the year marks got for people in the Old Testament, that might seem strange. It's a study for another time. But he walked a long life of faith before he was taken up by God. And he pleased God by his faith. Verse 6. But without faith, without this faith that Enoch pleased God with, it is impossible to please God. So that factor that made him pleasing to God, it is both the opposite true well. If you don't have faith, you can't please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It tells us a couple, uh, three main important things. Number one, you have to have faith to please God, and that implies that you can please God. It implies that your faith has to include the fact that God is. Now that statement, God is, I believe is an echo of God's true name, the great I am. I am means God is now, he always was, he always will be, he just is. He's the constant, ever-present God. So to believe that he is means that you believe that he is and forever will be and ever has been. So once you have that kind of understanding of, of God's greatness... We also have to understand that he is a rewarder. So if your faith is going to be the kind of faith that it needs to be, you have to have a constant, and I have to have a constant perspective of his ability and his willingness and his desire to be a rewarder of us. That brings great confidence to my faith and encouragement to my faith. And he didn't say perfect. He says, of those who diligently seek him. And we're going to see in a little bit that that's all any of us can ever do, is diligently seek. Diligent seeking is the pattern of the Christian life that will give you the best life you could ever live in this world. And it will give you the greatest hope of eternity that you could ever have. Diligently seeking God. One man commented on this, on this verse and said, These two elements seem most simple. You know, believing that God is and believing He rewards seem simple. But alas, how many professing Christians act, act as if God were not living? And how many others, though seeking after him, are not expecting him as a rewarder? So sometimes it's hard to keep this balance of understanding the importance and the need for acting as if God is here with us today, because he is. But also remembering that it's not all just a test. That he's there to be a rewarder. How many act as if God were not living, and how many others, though seeking him, are not expecting him as a rewarder? Verse 7, the next person, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness with his, which is according to faith. So Noah's example. In the Old Testament, God was fed up with the earth, and he needed a reboot. There was so much evil in the world that God said, we need to kind of start over. And he told Noah to build this ark, because he was going to destroy the world by a flood. The flood came both with rain from above, and it says the fountains of the deep came up. So water came from underneath the earth and came from above. 
and the earth was flooded. And before this happened, over a hundred years before this event happened, God warned him. He was divinely warned of things not yet seen. Why was it not yet seen? Number one, the world had never been flooded before. And number two, it had never even rained before. If you read in Genesis, it's just like this detail that slips in there and had not rained yet on the earth. That's a, that's a huge question in and of itself. But they talk about there was kind of a, a layer of moisture over the earth that kept the earth uh, watered. But then it never rained. So it, it was something that had not yet happened. And it had never even rained before. But he had godly fear. And he prepared an ark for the saving of his household. By which he condemned the world. This phrase can be a little head turning. He condemned the world. Well, it wasn't like he was out there... His goal was to send everybody to hell. What it's saying by he condemned the world was, by his example of faith, he basically made people look bad. And he, and he testified of God's plan. It says he was a preacher of righteousness. So that if this man, in a world full of sin, could both have faith and trust in God, and preach that righteousness... If people didn't respond, that's on them. And in that sense, they were condemned because they didn't accept it. They didn't walk in faith like this guy proved could be done. It could be done. There was only eight people that were saved when this world was destroyed. And, or the, the people in it were destroyed. And because of his faith, his act of obedience, that kind of just made the world look bad. And condemned them because of it. But it wasn't like he was the, the judge or in, any, in any sense like that. And he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Second Peter 2 verse 5 is where we learned he was, that he was a preacher of righteousness. So as he went through this whole process, his life's work of building this ark. It's interesting that he didn't start this until he was around 500 years old. And even once he did start it, it took 100 years or so to, come, to complete. A little over 100 years. And in that process, he worked to only save eight people. Now he preserved the other life forms on the earth. But really, as it, as it goes to the core human need for saving, there's only eight people that got saved from that flood. And so as we consider Noah's example, I think it helps us to know that we need to keep going even if our efforts seem small. If you're a 500-year-old man building a boat for 100 years, can you imagine how tired he must have been? I, I don't know how God intervened or how his physical state was, but we know that, that, people, that uh, Sarah laughed when she was supposed to give birth at 100 years old. So there's some extent to where they were... They were well in their years to where this would have been a huge task. To do that and save eight people, your efforts may seem small. Your work may seem monotonous and maybe not that fruitful. And Noah of all men could understand that. But he was faithful to God. And he kept on going even though it felt long and arduous. And his family stayed with him too. And the lesson we can learn from where he started was if you think you're old and it's too late for you to get started in your walk of faith. Noah's great work that he's commended for didn't start until he was that old. 
You can start anytime. You can start anywhere. And that's not a, that's not a comfort to delay to later. That's, that's a comfort to start now. Because true faith will say, I want to start this now because it's the best life I can live. And I believe God's word when he says that. But also because I have faith in his plan and his promise. Real faith will always do something. We see great faith being met with actions. It goes on to say, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. So the next person is Abraham. And his act of faith that he's commended for, and the faith that was embodied was when he was called to go out. He was called to leave where he had been before to go to the promised land, which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. They had a nomadic life to do that. The heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now God would make the promised lineage go through Abraham, and he would promise him of these great, this great descendants that would happen. But the faith that he's commended for is not in, the, in Sarah's birthing of a child in an old age. It's of his willingness to go out. When it was time for him to separate and take on God's promised land and God's promised work for him. It's interesting. I think of him being the bearer of, of nations and his work of faith in, in Isaac. But it says it was when he had to separate and go out. There was that time of decision where he had to make a decision. Where are you going to stand? And he, called, he was called and he went out from there. So Genesis chapter 12 records this event when God called him. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, from everything that you thought of as normal and comfortable, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. This is a big theme in the Bible. A pronounced blessing is, is kind of a... Everybody take a look at this. When God pronounces a blessing... I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abraham took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. It goes on to say, so that was, that was Abraham's statement. But his counterpart is mentioned in verse 11. His counterpart is said of this. By faith, Sarah herself also restrained seed, received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age. Past the age meaning she was 100 years old. It wasn't time for her to have babies anymore. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. Okay, if you, if you look back at that account, if you look back at that account, it's interesting that God compliments her for this because her first response was she laughed. And, and God didn't really like that. But, after she gives birth to the baby, 
She, she has faith. Once, it, once God makes it clear that this will happen, she, she, gets, she gets it straight and she accepts it. And the way she kind of handles it is cool. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, so after he was born, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all of you here will laugh with me. I like her, her attitude and her approach here. And I'm going to take a second to, to dwell on her example because though she responded with a laugh, like, you've you got to be kidding me. There's, there's, maybe she thought there's no way. Really, her response was, okay, who would have thought? Because I was saying, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. She must have been thinking, man, this old woman is going to have a baby. All right. And her attitude is, is really encouraging. There's a lot asked of our women of faith. They carry such a heavy weight of other people's burdens, of service, of concern, and of counsel. And I love her spirit here because I can just see her laughing, kind of just, you know, like it was said of Lyndall. You either laugh, or you laugh about it or you cry about it. And, and she just... She took it, and, and she went on with this example. This is one of the hardest things a human can go through, I think, is childbirth. To go through the process and, and eventually birthing the child must have been extremely hard on her as an old lady. And she took it on with the laugh of submissive service to God's plan, to Abraham's, to help out Abraham's lineage as the man who this would all come through. And she submitted to her role within this process. She didn't get the spotlight. It was Abraham's lineage and his name, but he could have never done this without her. It takes another level of strength to continue your work when you know you're not gonna be the one who gets all the credit. Or maybe once you've done it, to keep doing the work when you know that you're not gonna get the credit. And that's a wonderful example that Sarah has here in her faith that she took it, and she, she ran with it. She, she was going to fulfill her role in this great plan of a promised lineage. And I love how in the New Testament, the terminology used to describe the Holy Spirit as the helper is the same term that's used to describe the woman, that she would be a helper suitable for man. That though it might seem like a, a role that a lot of people don't value, or a lot of people don't see is that great, you know, the spotlight is the great role. The Holy Spirit, the one who, who inspired the, the, the scriptures that we read and who, who helped enact all of God's plans, we don't look at the Holy Spirit and say, yeah, Holy Spirit was just, was just a helper. No, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says, I'm going to send another helper when I'm gone, that is a great and a massive role for the church, for us today. And somehow how the Holy Spirit lives within us today as that helper, that is nothing to scoff at. That is nothing to mock at. And the women are given the same description as the helper. That is a powerful statement, I think, as we consider the role of women. And as women, I hope you value your role. And I hope we continue to get better and better at showing you the value for your role, both in your families and in God's family in the church. 
She has, a, to me, I see a picture of a loving heart, instinctive resilience, and creative optimism it takes to take on some of life's toughest challenges, like here in, in Sarah's example. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead, speaking of Abraham's ability to, to pass on another generation, there were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. A reproductively dead man led to a huge lineage of people as, as innumerable as the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. So they didn't have the true promised land that is promised to us as Christians and, and uh, Jews alike from the Old Testament. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This word embrace, as I understand, uh, it kind of carried a connotation in the Greek of, of greeting or saluting a friend a far way off. If you see a friend and you give him a nod a ways off, it's, it's, that's the kind of connotation that they were assured of them. And, and even if you use the word embraced, it was from afar off. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. If you see a friend from a far away off, just because they're far away doesn't make them any less real and any less important to you. You can see them with, with fondness from afar off, just like these people saw the promise of God afar off. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. If they would have been thinking about going back, it would have been easy for them. And maybe you don't feel today like you belong. Maybe you don't feel like you have a great place in your circles or in the world you're surrounded with. Seek a homeland. Hello. Seek a promised land that is to come where we will indefinitely and undeniably belong. And let's not look back. But now they desire it better. That is a heavenly country. So even... Abraham, who got to the land of Canaan, the promised literal land, they still sought for a promised heavenly land. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is kind of right in the middle of the chapter, but for now we are going to, uh, just, to just conclude. So we'll go to a couple conclusions just to summarize what we learned. right about time and we're going to save this for next time so next time we speak we'll get into the kind of the second half of Hebrews chapter 11 but today we've, we've examined some examples of faith and if you have not started this walk of faith today you can you can be an heir of the promises as, as a spiritual heir of Abraham the one who had those descendants that were going forever you could be that today in God's word, he lays out a plan to hear his word, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that we can repent of our past life and turn to serve his ways and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the true one who saves us from our sins and give us, gives us that eternal promised land. And you can be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you've already done that and you want to get back on the right path, you want to hold more closely to that and embrace those promises we can do that together today. 
And if there's one of either class, please come while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.